So as we open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today have I begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Years ago, I used to, when I had trouble with my car or my truck, I always tried to fix it myself. And I wasn't necessarily overly good at it. In fact, I remember when I was living out in Seattle, one time my truck broke down and the clutch is what went out on it. Thankfully, I got permission from my in-laws to put my truck in their garage where I could work on it for a day. And so I called work, told them my truck was broke down and wasn't able to get there. Well, I pulled the clutch out of it, went down to the auto parts store, took it down there with me, and they gave me a new clutch. And I pulled it out of the box, and I looked at it, and this one has three arms that get depressed when you push in the clutch. And my other one had a whole bunch of, like a whole bunch of fingers that stood up. They call it a diaphragm. And I said, look, this, this doesn't look like mine looks. They said, yeah, the new ones are like that. Don't worry about it. I looked it up for your truck. It fits. And so I said, okay, and I went, went back. And I put the clutch in where it goes, and I put the transmission back in place, hooked back up the drive line, went to pull the truck out of the garage, wouldn't go anywhere. So, unhooked the drive line, pulled out the transmission, pulled out the clutch, and which obviously takes a lot longer than what I'm explaining to you right now. <laughs> and I took the clutch down there, and I said, this doesn't work. Uh, and I told them about my last one, and they went... And they went about walked back, came back out a couple minutes later. Yep, you're right. You got the wrong one. Here you go. Sorry. Oh, great. So I, I take this one and I go in and I put this one in, put the transmission in, hook back up the drive line, go to move, pull out. Won't go anywhere. So I called them at the auto parts store. I said, I don't understand. Now I got this part. It looks like the part that I brought you. Should work. The guy says, oh, did you get the different bearing? I said, the different bearing? Because there's a throwout bearing in there. So you got to get the clutch and the bearing. And so when I came back down, they switched back out my clutch, but left me with the same bearing as came with the other one. And so now the bearing was wrong. So I went back and I pulled back out the transmission, pulled back out the clutch, went down, got the right bearing, put it all back together. So by this time, I've missed two days of work. I was talking to my superintendent of the company that I worked for because he didn't really like it that I had to miss work for it. But I said, you know, what can I do? He says, I'll tell you what you do. He said, you let somebody that knows what they're doing put the clutch in your truck. And then you work extra hours to pay them. You do what you know what you're doing. They do what they know what they're doing. Everybody's happy. So I ended up leaving to go off to Bible college. I was working for Ted Weinberg down there and something broke on my van. And I called Ted and I said, I can't come to work today. He said, why not? I said, well, my van's broken, and I think I know what's the matter with it, but i got to fix it. And he said, no, you don't have to fix it. He said, it's got to go in a shop because you, I need you at work. And I said, I can't afford a shop. We're living on starvation wages here and going to school and stuff too. And he said, I can't afford for you not to be at work, 
I'm paying for your van to get fixed. It's going in a shop. You just That's just the way it's going to be. After that, you know what? I never work on my vehicles again. <laughs> because I noticed a few things, not just with the clutch, but with most times that I worked on a car. By the time I replaced parts that didn't need replacing and got down to the nitty-gritty of what was going wrong, I think it was probably just as expensive as taking it to a mechanic. And not only that, they run good when you get them back from a mechanic. And I'm glad to say that ever since then I've driven cars that run nice, and uh, something does go wrong with them. I take them in the mechanic. I let them do what they know what they're doing. I do what I know what I what I got to do. I'll do that a little bit more if I have to to pay that bill. But I let the guy that knows what he's doing do the job. I have noticed that sometimes you got to go shopping for a mechanic. Back in Owatonna, I had somebody that I liked there. When we were here, I liked having it to Andy. I liked taking it over to Joe. Sometimes it takes a little bit to find uh, find a mechanic that you're comfortable with and that you like. But it's so, it's so much better, I think. For me, that's the way I do it now. Well, you know what? I went through the same thing spiritually a little bit too. For years of my life, as far as my justification before God, I kind of did it on my own. I just figured that my life would stand up for, for itself and that God would be okay with that. And so I didn't really recognize a need for Jesus Christ. I just knew that God existed. And I would say this repeated prayer at night. But I never really understood where Jesus came into the picture because I never understood my need for a high priest. I never understood how I needed somebody to go between me and God. It's not something I could do on my own because I'd already sinned. I didn't have an ability to approach God. I needed a high priest. And so that also was something that I tried to do on my own for a while and then finally realized this isn't working on my own. I don't have open access before God. I'm rejected before God. And when I realized that, then I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have entrusted it to Him ever since. Well, that's what the people of Hebrews are dealing with at this point. They are ahead of me in a, in a sense, in that they knew they needed a high priest. They'd had their whole Old Testament history. They'd had a priest when God first called them out as a, as a nation. He gave them Moses as their leader and God's spokesman and Aaron Moses' brother would be their priest. And then after Moses' brother Aaron would die, then it would go to his sons. And so God appointed a priesthood. And ever since that time, they had a priest. They were shut out of the Holy of Holies. There was a curtain there. They couldn't, were not allowed to enter. Only the high priest could enter once a year. So they knew that they needed a priest. But now they're shopping. Which priest? These are people that you'd think their shopping was done when they heard the truth about Jesus Christ and that He was the Messiah, that He was their high priest. He died on the cross for their sins, rose again from the dead to give them victory over death and sin in their life and eternal home in heaven when they die. They had embraced Him. They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So it looks like their shopping's over. You've made your decisions. You've picked your selection. But they're starting to waver. They've gone through some suffering in their life and some persecution from their fellow Jewish people. They're tempted to draw back. And the old priesthood was still going on in the temple. The temple hadn't been destroyed yet, so they're still offering sacrifices in there. And there's still the priesthood in place. And so the Jewish people are tempted to pull back from Christ. Their life will just go back to normal maybe get their property back, their home back, stop being ridiculed publicly, maybe even get let out of jail if that's the situation that they're in. They're, a lot of them are experiencing these kinds of things and their life will just go back to normal if they go back to that old temple system, that old sacrificial system. But to do that, they've got to turn their back on Christ. So they've got two priests. They've got the priesthood of Aaron that's been handed down through the ages. And they've got the priesthood of Christ. Which one will they choose? 
That's the same thing that it is for us. That's the whole issue of salvation. Who's going to represent you before God? Jesus Christ is the only one. In fact, that's what he's been telling them. There is no more priesthood. There is no more sacrifice. All those sacrifices, all that priesthood that came before was a picture of what God was going to do through his son, Jesus Christ, when he got here. He's encouraging them in their priest shopping to pick the right one. To choose the one that guarantees eternal life. And in doing that, he's going to draw this comparison again between Jesus Christ and the priesthood of Aaron. And so as we look at that, what I'd like to do is just go down quickly kind of through the passage and see what he lays out about the priesthood and what it entails. He's going to outline that for him. And then he's going to compare Jesus Christ to that outline and show him how he is better. First of all, we find the qualifications for a priest. The first one is that he had to be man. So he says, For every high priest chosen among men is appointed on to act on behalf of men in relation to God. It wasn't an angel that God sent to step into the gap between us and God. It's not an animal that they were brought for years as sacrifices as a picture of the death of Christ that would come. But it had to be a man that would be our high priest. Second, he emphasized the fact that he also had to be called. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, For every high priest chosen from among men, is appointed. Notice that. These high priests are chosen and appointed. As we look down a little bit farther in verse 4, it says, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so he said the high priests were chosen by God, they're appointed by God, they're called by God. All those three things saying the same thing repeatedly. You know, some people learn this the hard way. If you read back in Numbers chapter 16, you'll find a a story of a guy named Dathan and Abiram and Korah. And these three men at one time came up to Moses and Aaron and said, you're taking a little too much on yourself. It's not just you guys that are holy before God. All of us are God's chosen people. We're all holy before God. They wanted some equality, more of maybe a democratic process maybe, for appointing the priests. And so they said, Moses and Aaron, you guys are taking too much on yourself. You shouldn't be the only one that can be priests. We should be able to be it also. And you know what God did? He had the ground open up and swallowed the whole lot of them. God wasn't making any uh, bones about the fact that He was the one who established the priesthood. And He was the one appointing and calling and choosing. And it wasn't happening through a democratic process. And so the qualifications for a high priest had to be these two things. One, he had to be man and he also had to be called, appointed by God. Well, it also emphasizes after that, it goes into the duties of the high priest. The duties of the high priest is, one, that he mediates between God and man. Because it says that he is to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So he's to go before God, acting on our behalf. And so he mediates that office. Then also he does that through offering gifts and offering sacrifices. Now, sacrifices, I think, pointing more toward the sacrifices for sin. The gifts, there were thanksgiving offerings, these grain offerings, first fruits offerings, temple offerings that they would give into the temple. And whether it was sacrifice or gifts, it was his job to stand in between. So he was a mediatorial office working on behalf of the people, and he was doing that through the offering of gifts and sacrifices. Well, not only that, but then he goes from there into laying out the benefit of the priest. And the main benefit that he lists of the priest is the fact that he is understanding. Notice it says in verse 2, He can deal gently with ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. And so he can deal gently with those who have sinned, 
And so as we look at this in summary just uh, quickly, so as we notice that we see the qualifications for, for a high priest, that he is man, that he had to be called. His duties were to mediate between God and man, to offer those gifts and sacrifices. And the benefit of the high priest is that he understands us. That brings us to the last part of the passage. All the rest of the passage is focused on this thing, and that is the benefits of Christ. He's taking the priesthood of the past, Aaron's priesthood, the priesthood that was the shadow, and he's going to put that up against Christ. He's comparing the two, and he's saying, look, here's the benefit of Christ. You need Christ. You know, it was pretty simple for me. Of course, I didn't have the the choice of another priesthood to go to. You know what I had the choice of? Priest or no priest? Am I going to argue my case before God someday when I stand before Him? Or am I going to let Jesus do it? I'll let Jesus do it. Arguing my case is futile. The Bible says every mouth shall be stopped. In other words, I will be shut up by my own guilt. So I'm glad to let Jesus, at the right hand of God, argue my case for me. As we look through this passage, we find that Christ lines up with all those same qualifications. As we go back through that outline there that we have before us and look at Christ with each one of them, we find that He lines up very well. The first one was that He had to be man. In verse 7 it says, In the days of His flesh. You know, Jesus is an eternal being. He had an eternity past. He has an eternity future. But one part of His existence was 33 years that He lived down here on this world where He came in the incarnation, was born a baby, and He lived in the flesh. And so He became a man. And so He fits the qualification just like the sons of Aaron did. Not only that, but notice He also had to be called. And that's why it quotes a couple passages for us. It quotes from the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. If you go back and read each psalm, you'll find very quickly that those are obviously messianic psalms. They're obviously psalms that are pointing to the future coming of the Messiah when they were penned back in David's day. And the Jewish people at the time of Christ recognized that clearly. They knew that they were talking about the Messiah. And within them, we find these two passages that he quoted. You are my son, today I have begotten you, which he would already quoted back in chapter 1. And then he says in verse 6, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek, this character has been mentioned twice in this passage, but we're not going to deal with him yet. And the reason is because he's just mentioning him now, and we're going to get into that, but he's not quite into it yet. So we're going to pause on Melchizedek. We'll learn about him later. But he puts these two passages together that we're speaking about Christ, and he says these prove that when the Messiah came, that he would be called by God to be a priest. And so he qualifies for that. You can find this in a lot of Jesus' teaching. John chapter 10 and verse 18 was one of them. It says, No one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Notice that. This charge I have received from my Father. In other words, the Father is who gave Him the task of coming down here as our High Priest and as our sacrifice and laying down His own life to pay for our sins and to take it up again in victory over the grave. And so Jesus is both man and He's called. As we go on from there, we see that the duties of the priest. So we talked about the duties of a high priest being the offering gifts and sacrifices for sins as he mediates between us and God. And now he says, in the time of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. It might be referring to a lot of different prayers that he was offering up, but it obviously 
at least includes, if not if it's not the only thing on his mind, the time in Gethsemane. Remember, just before the cross, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed before the Father there. And the Bible says he prayed to the one who could save him from death. There's a couple different ways that is possible interpretations of that verse. The idea of saving him from death, you won't have to go to the cross. The other way to interpret that is it is possible in the language that you can read it being saved through death. In other words, that he would go to the cross, but he's confirming the resurrection. Well, I guess I would stick with the first interpretation that he's talking about being saved from death, maybe not going to the cross. And the reason that I stick with that is why the passage does say that he was heard. His prayer was heard. It was answered. But if you look at it, remember back to what's going on. This is what we find in John chapter 12. Jesus made this statement. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. So Jesus told his disciples shortly before the cross, he's saying, my soul is troubled. It's close enough that he's getting a little troubled, panicked about it. And he says, what am I supposed to say? Save me from this hour? He says, this is why I came. I can't say save me from this hour. This is my purpose. This is why I'm here. I've got to do this. But then not only that, but then look at what he prays when he's in the garden of Gethsemane. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So he is saying that. He is telling the father, if there's another way to do this, let's do it that way. If this, if I don't have to drink this cup, then I'd rather not drink it. But then how does he finish? Not as I will, but as you will. In other words, if this is the only way, let's stick to the plan. Let's go with plan A and we'll do this. And so he was absolutely heard. So Jesus, he has the same duties as a priest, as our priest. What is, what is he doing? He's, he offers up prayer and supplication, but he was also in the process of offering up himself, laying down his life on that cross for us as our high priest. And so we see that he fulfills the duties of a priest as well. In fact, far superior. You know, it's, it's going to get into the point in Hebrews where they're going to talk about the priests offering up the blood of what? Bulls and goats. Jesus offered up his own. And so he fulfilled a duty that none of them ever had to, and none of them actually could or was qualified to. Not only that, but we also see the benefit of the priests. The benefit of the priest is that he understands, and we spent all last week talking about how Christ is able to sympathize because of all the suffering that he endured, and even in temptation by carrying that temptation to the full extent by not caving into sin. And so as we look at this, Jesus is perfected. It's kind of interesting as we look in the passage. When we're dealing with the one high priest, it says that the high priest could understand the other people because he was a sinner himself. And so he can, he can be gentle toward us because he, he knows what it's like to be in our shoes because he is in our shoes. But the problem with that then is he got a sinful high priest. And so what was the answer? We'll offer a sacrifice for him first, clean him up, and then let him do the job for everybody else. But what is the answer with Christ? With Christ, what we find is in verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. You see, with the Old Testament priests, because of their sin, fix it with a sacrifice. With Jesus, we find learned obedience. Not fell into sin. Learned obedience. Being perfected. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read through that, years ago it didn't strike me as maybe a plus the first thing that came to my mind was wait what do you mean what do you mean christ learned he's god isn't he how can he learn if he's god what is it what do you mean being made 
made perfect. Wasn't He already perfect? I thought He already was perfect. What do you mean He wasn't perfect yet? It's not insinuating that He wasn't perfect. And it's not also not insinuating that He didn't have full knowledge, that He wasn't all-knowing. He was all-knowing. But this is what it is. The idea of learning, with Christ's learning, is the idea of learning what it means to experience that thing. Right? He already knew everything, but now He's going to learn. It says, yet learned He obedience through the things that He suffered. He's going to learn what it felt like to walk in our shoes. What it feels like to suffer. What it, what it means to make a decision to do what's right when the whole world is ready to kill you and is able to do it. He's going to learn through this experience. We see the same kind of thing in our life, right? We can learn facts, but knowing a fact is very different than experiencing a fact. When I was in college, I went as a married student. Zach was on the way, so our third son was on the way when we went off to college. There was a student that was in my class that, oh, a couple of years into it or so, he started dating this gal. And then they got engaged and he was going to get married. He was a kind of a perfectionist kind of a guy. He was always had 4.0 on everything and always was meticulous with his work and always studied ahead and, and just a very diligent student. Well, he treated other areas of his life that way too. So when he got, was going to get married, he started reading books on marriage. And then he'd come and he'd sit down with us married guys when we, because we were always, all the married guys are always off talking together. He would come over and talk with us married guys and start having a conversation about marriages, marriage and stuff like that. And I remember at one point I told him, I said, you know what? I said, it's really cool that you're reading that book, but I'll tell you this, don't get rid of that book. In about three years, open it and read it again. Because learning about marriage as a single person, it's like reading the answers before you know what the questions are. You don't really understand yet. But if you've been married for a little bit and then you read the same book, now you've got a whole framework to understand these issues with. And so I encourage him to do that. I remember the same thing with kids. And I remember when uh, all we had was Tim and he was just a little guy and we had some friends that we hung around with a lot. Whenever we'd go out to dinner and we'd have Tim with us and stuff, if he acted up at all, while we're dealing with him, we got to hear in the background this conversation about how they're going to handle it when they have children. And we were so glad when they got pregnant. And, and I remember we'd go to their house, and, and she is like an, a, kind of a knick-knack queen. Had these little trivets and things all over the place within his reach. And so we spend half the night, let me draw something for Pictionary, and then run over here and pick these things back up and slap his hand to keep him away from those. And, and it was just a tiring night, you know. And Lisa would tell her, boy, when you have a kid, those are going to go. Oh, no, my kid's going to learn. They're going to learn. You can't touch those things. Those are mom's. You know what? They had their kid, and then he got to where he could start to move a little better, and we were just biding time. And finally, we went over to their house after that kid was up and around a little bit, and was like, hey, you moved all your stuff. <laughs> she said, I would have went crazy. <laughs> you know? It's like, but you know what? Before you have the kid, you've got all the answers. Once you got the kid, now you realize you don't even have the questions. Right? And, uh, but you're starting to collect them fast. It just gives you a whole different frame of, re- of reference. Jesus knew all these things, but He experienced them now. He walked in our shoes. And in that sense, then it also says that He was made perfect. Don't think of, the per- don't think of perfect as, as imperfect or somehow blemished and then a perfect one. The idea of perfect in this sense means a perfect as incomplete. Right? It's the idea of, look, Jesus was perfect before, but as our high priest... Until He offers Himself as a sacrifice for us and pays that price, 
It's incomplete. The work's not finished. It's not done yet. And so when He came and He offered Himself as our, as our sacrifice and then rose again from the dead and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, now it's complete. He was our high priest before, but He, he, he hadn't finished yet. He hadn't carried out that function. Now He's made perfect in His high priesthood. And that's an important concept. Remember, that's one of our key words. As we're looking through Hebrews, there are several key words. The idea of better or superior. The idea of being perfect. We, we trace that one through. Let's trace it through a couple places just to remind ourselves. We find in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, For it was fitting that He for, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should, be made the, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, it points out that the law made nothing perfect. That's why they had to keep doing it. They had to keep offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because it never completed it. It never finished it. It was imperfect. So the law perfects nothing, but Jesus Christ is our perfect high priest. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, Verses 22 and 23, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to, notice this one, the spirits of righteous men made perfect. That's awesome. That's talking about us. Because we have a perfect high priest, he perfects us. He perfects us. We have his righteousness. So he's learned obedience. He's made perfect. And lastly, He is the foundation of our salvation. And that's been focused on as well through the book of Hebrews. If we remember back in chapter 1, and verse 14, it talks about the angels. And what was their job? It's kind of to step in for the people that would inherit salvation. We also were warned in chapter 2, and verse 3, He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. In fact, the whole issue is the salvation. Again, in chapter 2, verse 10, which we already quoted in reference to Christ's perfection, it says that He would make the founder of their salvation perfect through, through that suffering. And so He is the, the founder of our salvation. And the whole point of this whole thing, the warning passage that we've gone through right up to this point, what is He telling the people to do? Be careful that you don't miss out on the promised land. Be careful that you don't really possess salvation. Now, he is encouraged. He's thinking of them well. Chapter 6, verse 9, he points out that they think higher things of them. They're thinking of things of them that belong to salvation. In other words, he's saying, I think that you're legitimate in your faith, but if you can turn your back on Christ, you'll prove me wrong. And you may only have been somebody who professed a salvation and didn't really own it. Now, notice who he says it goes to. It says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We know that our salvation is not based on works, it's based on faith. But we also know that any faith without works is dead. So there is a sense in which if we're saved, the works will follow it. The works will show it to be true. But I don't think that's what he's talking about right here. I think what he's talking about is what is called the, the obedience of faith. We find it, in, for example, in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. 
for the sake of His name among all the nations. Obedience is not just about doing the right things. It's about believing the right things. In fact, I'd say it's first of all about believing the right things. And that's what he's dealing with with these Hebrews. They're looking at actually not believing that Christ is the high priest, that he is the Son of God anymore. And so what their choice is, their moment of obedience, disobedience, is about trusting in Christ. It's about faith. John chapter 6, we find the same thing with works. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So you see, in both of those things, there is is a sense which, when they talk about obedience, is talking about an obedience of faith. And so you see, as we look at it here this morning, they were basically pre-shopping. Do you want the guy who is the very foundation of eternal salvation? Do you want the guy who learned obedience, not fell into sin? Do you want the guy who was made perfect By completing the once and for all sacrifice, it's a no-brainer. Trying to go without a high priest and do it on your own is more foolish than me trying to replace my own clutch. (laughs) We need a high priest. We just need the right high priest, and that is Jesus Christ.